Good morning. Scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 17, verses 15 through 21, and Luke 1, 39 through 56. So buckle up. It's a lot, but there's pictures, so don't worry. <laughs> and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Mary got up and quickly went to a town in the hill country of Judea. She went to Zachariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the unborn baby inside her jumped, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she said to Mary, God has blessed you more than any other woman, and God has blessed the baby you will have. You are the mother of my Lord, and you have come to me. Why has something so good happened to me? When I heard your voice, the baby inside me jumped with joy. Great blessings are yours because you believed what the Lord said to you. You believed this would happen. Mary said, I praise the Lord with all my heart. I am very happy because God is my Savior. I am not important, but he has shown his care for me, his lowly servant. From now until the end of time, people will remember how much God blessed me. Yes, the powerful one has done great things for me. His name is very holy. He always gives mercy to those who fear him. He reached out his arm and showed his power. He scattered those who are proud and think great things about themselves. He brought down rulers from their thrones and raised up the humble people. He filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away with nothing. God has helped Israel, the people he chose to serve him. He did not forget his promise to give us his mercy. He has done what he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then went home. This is the word of the Lord.
Good? Good. I probably don't need amplification, but I'll let you play with the electronics. I'm going to um, pray. Uh, Father and our God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight and beneficial to your people this day. Amen. You should open your um, order of service booklets to uh, page 10. Um, special feature, you've got pictures to look at. Uh, my son-in-law asked me last night what my props were. Well, I've got a couple of pictures. <laughs> and they're good pictures, that's why they're there. Let me highlight what is obvious, but uh, maybe you've never heard or never thought about before. I need to make a contrast between this story of two mothers and other religions. Buddhism begins with a grown man, a prince who observes suffering and from his own resources develops a philo uh, philosophy to minimise suffering or take Islam, which begins with a successful businessman who gets a series of revelations from Gabriel, interestingly the same angel that comes to Mary. <coughs> Over a period of 10 years, Muhammad reveals a series of prophetic statements about there being just one God who wants particular practices and a sense of identity in a special community. But real Christianity, not religion with a dusting of Bible verses that focus on judging people's behaviour, begins with two women, not men. They have husbands, we know their names, but for different reasons they are just bit players. One because is mute and lives with Elizabeth because of unbelief and the other, Joseph, we never hear anything said by him. The men, or sorry, the women, Mary and Elizabeth, are not first of all success stories, independently wealthy like the two men who feature prominently in Buddhism and Islam nor are they seeking the answers to life. They are, with real respect, just nobodies whose faith, and I much prefer, uh, prefer fearful trust, is steadfastly fixed on God, who at this point of time has been absolutely and totally silent for 400 years. It takes a lot of fearful trust in God to hang on to the historic promises when living out of the limelight, away from the centres of influence, in a country occupied by Roman enemies and being just women in a male-dominated society. Let me make the point, if you've never ever seen it clearly before, Christianity begins with two mothers who both bear special babies. It does not begin with men or their insights. 
or their revelations. And I want to say almost immediately that the beginning foreshadows the place of males and females in the rest of the story that Luke writes about Jesus and lays the foundation for the place of males and females in societies influenced by Jesus' view of women right down to today. But you'll be glad to know that's a story for another day. Look at that first picture. It's a good representation of the meeting of Elizabeth. It's on page 10, if you're not sure where I am. It's a good representation of the meeting of Elizabeth and Mary. Elizabeth is old. If I was the casting director, I would have made her look older. And she stands like a pregnant woman, supporting the bump that Mary has placed her left hand on. It appears from the story Mary arrives presumably totally unannounced at Elizabeth's place and Mary stuns Elizabeth by revealing that she already knows her secret. Let me be very clear again. There are two mothers in this scene, both with supernatural conceptions. Elizabeth, we have been told several times by this point, was barren and advanced in years. Now, if you're ready for the detail, gynecologically, that means all her eggs are gone. In order to conceive and be six months pregnant, God had to make another egg. Whether a husband, Zechariah, provided the sperm, we are not told. And I guess we don't need to know. You are told, or what you are told is that like others in the history of God's covenant relationship with his people, God supernaturally implanted Elizabeth with a special egg when her ovaries had expelled all the others long ago. After all, that's what he did with Sarah the wife of Abraham. And why I chose that first reading to remind you that God's done it once. Actually, he's done it several times by the time Elizabeth appears on the scene. Now, look at the report of what Elizabeth says. It's up there on the top of the page, above the picture. Mary's presence and perhaps touch, you can see a left hand there, uh, causes Elizabeth's baby to do a Toyota, oh, what a feeling, jump. That little detail conforms with normal pregnancy, as I understand it. However, the supernatural dimensions continues because old Elizabeth, we are told there, is filled with the Holy Spirit 30 years or 33 years, depending on how the clock works, ahead of Pentecost. So she begins to prophesy... There's been 400 years of silence, no prophet. And then all of a sudden, boom, a woman starts to prophesy under the influence of the Holy Spirit. There is a bit of mystery here. Does Mary tell her of the visit of the angel Gabriel and her own, probably at this stage, two-week-old pregnancy? 
To an Aussie, it doesn't look like they sat down and over a cup of tea, Mary told her all the news. They had a catch-up, in other words. I don't think so. Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, does not consider it impossible with God that a young woman could be carrying a fetus that she calls, under the influence of the Spirit, my Lord, not the Lord. Now that that title, Lord, has a history, you need to know it. Elizabeth knows the story of God's big plan that a special baby would be born who would be, in some mysterious sense, both God and man, and be rightly called Lord, the name of the covenant-keeping God. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth joins all the dots and sees in her relative Mary the bearer of the someone who would, uh, who would roll into one, the prophet of the Old Testament, the priest of the Old Testament, and the king of the Old Testament. Do you see that Elizabeth did, did not need to have Mary's pregnancy explained? She didn't need to cross-examine Mary and take a time concluding uh, the impossible that happened to this, her niece. Elizabeth was a representative of the people who clung to a promise that one day God would provide the saviour of the world, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, the king who would descend from Abraham, the prophet greater than Moses and the priest like Melchizedek. And that one would share the name of God, the Lord. Elizabeth tells us that while it was too early for Mary to notice any changes in her own body's cycles, we may well be reading a meeting occurring just two weeks after the appearance of the angel Gabriel to Mary. But Mary's journey to get confirmation by seeing Elizabeth's bump demonstrates that Mary had taken God at his word. (coughs) Elizabeth's last words are, look there, straight above the picture, you believed this would happen. As incredible as it seemed, Mary was pregnant without Joseph and she took the word of the angel Gabriel as the truth, even though she hadn't missed a period and didn't feel any different. Takes about a week, six to eight days to walk from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. So that's where I'm getting that rough two-week period. Mary was standing in front of an old woman who shouldn't be pregnant, and this was a sign that despite her chastity, she would soon observe changes in her own body that indicated that she was carrying a baby that she now knew was a special baby (coughs) turn the page Jennifer can I have my water bottle I should have carried it up here with me (coughs) thank you very much daughter (laughs) here's another picture Now, I've revised my mental picture of Mary 
For me, she's in her 20s. So again, if I was the casting director, I would have made her slightly older. But in terms of pictures, I didn't have much choice. I think there's evidence in this record of the meeting that Mary is perhaps independently wealthy or at least largely independent. Why? Because in a subsistence economy, you don't take long service leave, which is effectively what Mary did, came to see her uh, aged uh, aunt for three months. No TikTok. <laughs> no WhatsApp. No telephones. Was anybody in Nazareth concerned about her? She disappeared off the face of the earth and was gone for three months. How did she survive? How did those who were dependent on her get by without Mary doing the work that she did by day by day? Hence my guess that somehow she wasn't needed on the family farm or in the family business in Nazareth. She could take long service leave and no one really missed her input. But again, that's not important to the story. What she does is she shares the same beliefs about God as Elizabeth and she is not a saint because of what she says, which I'll highlight in a moment. Underneath the picture are the words Mary said and uh, because it was all squeezed into one page by Susie, <laughs> it's, it's, not like a, um, it's not like a song but it should be laid out like one of the songs that we just said or a poem. And I've broken that poem or song into two blocks or verses because it's easier to manage and then draw attention to what she says. I observe that at moments of high emotion, human beings write poetry or put their emotions into a song. I stood on the hill up here uh, on Anzac Day um, before dawn. And I listened to the ode of remembrance being said. Everybody of the thousands of the people that were up there on that morning stood in solemn silence. Because how do you capture the carnage, the destruction of the First World War or any war, I suppose, except in the words of a poem? Perhaps Luke, the author of this story of Jesus, resisted the temptation at this point to make some sort of theological comment about the meeting of these two women. He, instead, he decided to leave that comment to Mary's own words. Now I'll go out on the limb, and I've got Steve up the back there, but he won't report me to Presbytery. I think, too, that Mary is prophesying under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I'm tempted to call her poem the last of the Psalms or maybe perhaps the first truly Christian hymn. Whatever words describe it, Mary's song shows that a woman from the back blocks of Nazareth had absorbed her scriptures better 
She had soaked in the story of God, what we call the Old Testament. Because after all, that's all she had. And she too profoundly understood the plan and purpose of God. That first paragraph or block of verse of Mary's poem uh, is about how she sees her relationship to God. Our temptation is to focus on those first words and make some sort of application about praising God. That misses the point. The key words are not the first sentence, I praise the Lord with all my heart. The key words are in fact the last line. He, that is God, the Lord, always gives mercy to those who fear him. If you want to know where I am, mercy is in bold there on the uh, second last line of that verse. Those words tell you how Mary sees herself. Now, regrettably, you and I have lost Mary's choice of words. Perhaps because we've lost Mary's view of God. Orthodox faiths like Roman Catholicism and the Greek Orthodox elevate Mary to the status of a saint and give her the role of being influential in lobbying for all sorts of benefits from God. But Mary says that from God, she needs mercy. Mercy is what is given to those who don't deserve forgiveness. Mercy is not earned, it is granted unconditionally. Mercy is upstream from grace, which is the word that we most often default to. If Mary thinks she has received mercy, then she is conscious that like the rest of her people, perhaps even all the human race, she's done nothing meritorious. Her view of herself is that there is much in her to be forgiven even though we can learn again from her that she fears God. Elizabeth has just prophesied about her faith that she believed. Mary perhaps corrects Elizabeth and identifies that her heart attitude is one of fear. Not in a sense of dread and terror like in horror movies, but fear in the sense that she acts as if God has all the authority and her role is just to obey. He always gives mercy to those who fear him, if you like the bottom line of that first verse. And I'm moving quickly. The next verse or paragraph is Mary's summary of what God has consistently done throughout history with people who both fear him and love him with all their heart. But first an observation about that second verse. From the first line which describes God reaching out his arm and showing power right down to the last line which goes back in history to 
surprise, surprise, Abraham, the seven lines are only and all about God's strategy. What's there to observe in that? <laughs> well, surprise, surprise, Mary says absolutely nothing about being the carrier of the Son of God. It's almost as if her miraculous pregnancy drops off the radar. Given the momentous consequences of her pregnancy and Elizabeth's prophecy, you would forgive her for singing in wonder about herself. But there is not a word about herself. It's all about God. Mary shows that she's been deeply reflecting on the way God carries out his plan. The proud, the great rulers and the rich, he bypasses or destroys. He is, in a word or words, the God who reverses outcomes. That's the story of God from the very beginning. Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and the gods of the Egyptians are exposed as false by the plagues. Nebuchadnezzar, who rules the world, is taken into madness before he'll recognise God. And then his empire is wiped out anyway by the Persians. <coughs> but the humble, the hungry, and the powerless, he favours. What sort of God is he that totally rejects men acting as if they were little gods and drawing on their own resources of power, influence and wealth? Well, those who are powerful and wealthy and rich have their own reward. But the humble, the oppressed and powerless are shown mercy. There's that word again, third last line of that second verse. That's twice in the poem. You might almost think that it's significant to Mary. What is Mary thinking about God? Well, again, the last line, which you can call the bottom line, is a good summary. In Mary's mind, God is the one who keeps his promises, beginning with Abraham. In Mary's mind, God has a plan to renew the world, and it begins with Abraham. <coughs> and Elizabeth, at two examples of those who hunger for God's intervention, who are ordinary women and powerless to bring about change, and humble because they thought they had nothing to offer God. It turns out that they did have something to offer God, which they overlooked. Their fear and their wounds. I'm down to the last line on page 11. So Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months, which probably means she stays to assist her old cousin with the birth and then she goes home to Nazareth to face Joseph at 14 weeks with the very evident bloom of pregnancy and for those with eyes to see, 
the beginnings of a bump. Now let me leave Mary's poem and make some applications. First, a couple, an observation on this whole scene. In the encounter between Elizabeth and Mary, if the encounter between Elizabeth and Mary is made-up stuff, a tale from the legendary past, then I want to say, if that's your attitude to the Bible, then it really, this story fails to be inspiring or mo uh, motivating. It might be sentimental and nice, but it does nothing for you. If your view of the Bible is that it's made up stuff, then give me some sort of tale of some heroic early feminist who triumphs over adversity, especially the patriarchy. But the story of the meeting of two mothers, <laughs> which is saturated in obstetrical supernaturalism and the characters are not ever recorded as speaking again, should invite you. Better begs you to take another look at this scene. If the Bible is a textbook for theology, then the author, in this case Luke, had the ideal opportunity to write pages on mercy, fearful trust, virginal conception and other big topics. But he makes no comment. I reckon that is because he lets Mary do the talking and expects you and I to grasp the significance of what she says, not what the male writer says. Or better, Luke expects you to get on to Mary's wavelength, to long to have her perspective on God, to adopt her worldview. What has Mary told you? Well, she's briefly but powerfully told you the story of God. She's deconstructed history in an absolutely unique way. Let me help you understand that with some popular sayings about history. <coughs> the obvious one is that the winners are always grinners. No, they're not, if you take a long view and you have God in your sight. God reverses the expectations of the winners. Or another quote, history is always told by the powerful and the oppressed are overlooked. No, <coughs> at best that's a half-truth and leaves out the history of Abraham's people, the Jews, the least of all peoples. The powerful may write the history but God consistently reverses the outcomes if you have eyes to see, like Mary. Or another quote on history. The only thing we learn from history is that no one learns from history. We're doomed to repeat ourselves. Well, it may be true from a secular perspective that human beings never learn and are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. But that's ultimately a negative view. A sense of hopelessness lies underneath it. But what if there was intervention from another dimension? 
what we call the supernatural that changes the course of history. Has Mary got a simplistic view? <clears throat> if you take the history of the world and leave out the revelation of God, the actions of God, the plan and purpose of God, then because he has intervened, we will never, ever repeat the past. Nearly finished. I mentioned Buddhism and Islam at the start. Buddhism is a philosophy. philosophy. Philosophy starts with a big idea, then from the big idea you build other ideas in a logical sequence. It's a bit like building with children's Lego blocks. But if you will learn from Mary, real Christianity is a long story, a history of God revealing his plans and priorities. And consistently throughout that story, he has a place for the little people like Mary and Elizabeth and you and I. It's not a philosophy, but an almost never-ending story of God's plan to remake the world and populate that remade world with people who love him, who fear him and who long for his kingdom. Or again, consider Islam, which is not a philosophy but a set of rituals, a life of submission to big ideas and one man's revelations. Real Christianity is not a set of rituals. Mary and Elizabeth teach us that real Christianity is about taking our place humbly, fearfully, in a story whose author is not a man with a new revelation, but God come to earth. So on Mother's Day 2023, Elizabeth and Mary tell you mothers are part of the story written by God to change the world. Amen. As you're able, go ahead and stand and sing with us. We're going to sing the song, Greater You, Lord.